Hi, this is Bill Blair. You may not know my face, but I hold the Guinness World Record for the most special effect makeup characters portrayed in a career. I've been on Star Trek, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, and a few other franchise shows. And you're listening to Trek Untold. Trek Untold, the Star Trek podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. Throughout this series, I've spoken with many actors who donned some serious special effects makeup to play all manner of obscure Westmore aliens. For today's guest, he made a career of doing just that. This week on the show, I'm speaking to Bill Blair, an actor who holds the record for most characters with special effects makeup in a career. No, really, this is an actual Guinness World Record that he received in 2011, and I doubt anyone has topped him yet, and that includes Doug Jones. As far as Star Trek goes, he's been a Klingon, a Vulcan, a Bajoran, a Jem'Hadar, a Cardassian, and a whole bunch of other species that don't even have names. Michael Westmore just saw Bill Blair one day and said to himself, This man is my blank canvas, and he went to town on him as often as he could. With over 50 episodes of Star Trek to his credit, this man really knew what he was doing when it came to portraying an alien species. In addition to Bill's time on Trek, you would have seen him in over five dozen episodes of Babylon 5 as even more aliens, along with appearances on shows like The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, Frasier, Batman and Robin, Arliss, Charmed, The West Wing, Boston Legal, and much more in his nearly 100 film and television appearances. Mr. Blair is an expert on this special part of the Star Trek universe, and donning the makeup that many times means he's got some real stories to tell. So get ready to learn all about the most far-out performer in Star Trek history as we chat with our own resident alien, Bill Blair. But before we begin this week's episode, I want to remind you to follow Trek Untold on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Trek Untold, all one word. You can get show updates, check out some fun memes, and let me know what you think about what's going on with the current events in the Star Trek universe. You can also support this show directly on Patreon at patreon.com slash trekuntold, where you can support this show for as little as $2 a month. At higher tiers, you can listen to the shows before they come out, know about my guests well in advance, and even have a chance to ask them questions, get transcripts of these episodes to make sure you get all the info, and more benefits coming soon, including watch parties and live streams. But that's all dependent on more fans like you coming over and letting me know you want to be a part of events like that. If you want some Trek Untold merchandise, check out our store for gear and apparel, including shirts, hats, stickers, water bottles, notebooks, and a whole lot more. New designs will be added throughout the year, so it's always worth taking a peek. Trek Untold also has an Amazon shop where you can peruse everything Star Trek, sci-fi, and geeky on Amazon in one convenient location. If you're looking for a gift for the Trekkie in your life, or maybe want to see some of my favorite non-Star Trek things that you can get for yourself, check out the link for my Amazon shop in the show notes on the audio version and in the description below this video on YouTube. If you're listening to us on iTunes or any other audio platforms that allow for ratings and reviews, please leave us a five-star rating and a positive review to help out this show. If you're watching it on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe to us at youtube.com at Trek Untold and give the video a thumbs up and a comment. 
All of these things help more people find this show and to continue growing and bringing you awesome guests each and every week. Now, without further ado, let's beam in this week's guest. Computer, access interview file. And welcome back to Trek Untold. And now joining us on the other side of the screen here, we have a gentleman who is a Guinness World Record holder for aliens on screen for someone wearing a ton of makeup. I mean, he's been on Star Trek more times than I have fingers and toes, and I have a lot of fingers and toes. We are joined today by Mr. Bill Blair. Bill, how's it going? Very good. It's nice to be here. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us today. We have a lot of Star Trek to talk about because you were wearing a whole lot of makeup for many years. But uh, before we get into that stuff, I just want to ask you, Bill, What's your earliest memory of Star Trek? Did you grow up watching the show? Uh, yeah, I'll give away my age. Yes, I grew up watching from the day one. Uh, although I was young enough that I didn't watch every episode during its first run. So I was one of those that caught really caught into it during its first uh, syndication rerun days. However, I also did go to a convention in Cleveland, Ohio, in 1972 with my brother when they first started doing the conventions and we got to see a black and white copy the only one gene roddenberry had at the time we got to see a black and white copy of the original pilot the cage wow and of course the cast was there and literally from that point on i got really really hooked into what ifs of life what a wonderful memory to have too for a convention to be able to see that footage that's got to be something that sticks with you yeah, that was the infancy, really, of celebrity sci-fi conventions. And it was not so much based on dealers and other things. It literally was a simple onstage presentation by Gene and some of the, uh, I think Robert Justman was even there, if I remember right, and uh, half a dozen you know, of the cast members. I can't remember exactly which ones were there right now. Uh, but it was a type of thing that was really special and done really uh, to the fans. It wasn't them trying to sell something. It was them trying to, Gene Roddenberry, really trying to keep it alive. So they eventually, you know, he did get to do Next Generation. Yeah, and the times have definitely changed these days when it comes to Comic-Cons, especially the big, big ones. Yeah. Oh, all the corporations. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I still, I myself still prefer the fan-run small uh I call them intimate conventions where we really have a chance to not everybody, but we get a chance to really get meet and talk and enjoy uh, our fans who become friends sometimes. Yeah, I agree. As much as I like going to the big conventions and like getting to meet the really, really big celebrities or something to be said about just going to the small ones where you can get a little bit more intimate. Don't feel as rushed. You're not like shoulder to shoulder with someone. So it's, it's a, it's a much different experience. Yeah. It's not a conveyor line belt of, signature thanks goodbye you know we really have a chance to to take a few moments with everyone well bill let me ask you a few background questions about yourself before we start talking trek and i'd love to know where you were born who your parents were and what they did and what little bill wanted to be when he grew up (laughs) all right taking in order start with the first question where did i grow up little town with a big university name kent ohio Ah. more for these days of Kent State University of where I went to school from kindergarten all the way through college. I was a whole, I, I went through that entire system. Uh, as far as the family, it was just my mom, my dad, my brother, and I, just the four of us. 
it was relatively small town kind of atmosphere, uh, except for the I mean, when the university was in in session, it would double the population of our city uh, at the time, and we just had a, a small local office supply store. And we were the only one in the city. So if people need it until this department store started developing in the late seventies into the eighties. So we had, uh, we had a corner on the market for all of the local businesses that needed office supplies. And that was one thing that everybody, if you're in business, you needed office supplies. And as far as when I was a small child, I went through a whole thing, you know, first I know I wanted to play piano. I wanted, I liked music. But as I, you know, got into other things, yeah, being a baseball player was part of my my dreams. And then a little later on, I got to be pretty good at bowling and worked in a couple of bowling alleys and uh, really thought I could turn professional at one time. But then music came back into my life, and that's where I really started with more of the performing arts and stuck with that the rest of my life, whether it was within music, um, modeling, acting, live performances, anything where I could entertain folks. Love to see people smile. Love to see them dance. So you're going from music to performing, though. I mean, they are very much in the same kind of family of things, but they are different arts, essentially. So like, when did performing on stage or on screen kind of kick into you and, and make you want to pursue that full time? That actually, I will say, dropped in my lap. Um, my music career as a professional traveling musician, some came somewhat to an end in early 1982. And I had to pick a different direction, but I knew I wanted to stay in the performing arts. So it was suggested to me and I kind of went along with it that maybe modeling might be something I might consider. I always photographed well. Uh, I enjoyed being in front of people in front of a camera, even with music. For example, I studied uh, radio and TV broadcasting in college, and I played with a band for a while, and we played these circuits of the Holiday Inns back in 1980. And one of those Holiday Inns broadcasts live over the local AM radio station every Wednesday night. And even though it wasn't my band, the band leaders decided I was the one that was going to talk on the microphone all night long instead of the lead singer the way she would normally do, uh, because she didn't like the idea of being on the radio. So it was a natural for me. And actually, I got offered a job at that radio station. They wanted to go 24 hours a day. And I was offered a job to take the midnight to 6 a.m. if I was interested. But I really wanted to stay with my music at that time because um, I'd worked so hard to start building it up uh, over the years since high school and college. My first band, I was 16 years old. So as that evolved, um, and that came to an end. I moved to Chicago, went into modeling, uh, actually started teaching for a school for modeling and entertainment. Uh, and then while I was working there, one of the uh, employees at that school got word from the owner whose daughter was doing castings for a PBS American Playhouse film that was shooting in Chicago. And they needed a bunch of what we then called extras uh, for for this scene out at the Chicago stockyards and asked me if I would help out his daughter. I said, sure, why not? It, it looks like it'd be a day that I don't have to be here teaching. So let's go for it. 
And I mean, back then, it, even to this day, I know a lot of people think it's strange to say it's not about the money. But when you're entertainment, when you do what you love to do, I've always learned that the money follows. You don't do it for the money. You do, if you did arts for the money, you'd be starving all your life. Yeah. You've got to love it first. So with that in mind, I went, it was like $25 for however long the day was. But I paid attention and I found myself in a position where I saw somebody come out. It turned out it was a, one of the assistant directors and they were talking to somebody who was in charge of all the extras. And I overheard the gal say, we need somebody that we haven't seen before to turn into a security guard. And I just kind of got their attention, made eye contact and said, can I help you with that? And that's always been my approach is always ask somebody what I can do for them. How can I assist? Not, oh, let me do that. And they asked me where I was. I said, well, you saw where that crowd was over there. They said, yeah. I said, well, I was in the back row or next to the back row. I don't think even the camera could see me. They said, you sure? I said, yes. If I can help you, great. And so I got into a security guards outfit. And next thing I know, I'm up on this platform, uh, loading dock kind of a thing, looking down at the crowd that I was standing in a few minutes earlier. Long story short, I came to the point where I didn't know what was going on. And then they said, can you stand in for yourself? I had no idea what that meant. All of a sudden, the camera's looking at directly at me. And all I could think of going through my head was, OK, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close up. <laughs> and that's how it, that's how the first time happened for me getting into really acting outside of you know school plays where I couldn't even get a part really in one of my high school plays. I did mostly backstage work just to be involved with the process. Um, never belonged to the drama club or anything. And here I am in my very first movie, all by myself on camera. My parents were so proud when that, uh, that movie aired on PBS. Everybody was watching it that night from around town that knew I was going to be in it. My dad, even in the old days, this was before digital and everything. My dad actually got his 35 millimeter camera out, focused it on the television and was snapping pictures every time he thought I was ready to come on camera because I told him exactly where it was going to be. And so, yeah, that's that's where I got my feet wet. And I thought, I think I could do this again. This felt like this is fun. I enjoy this. I got twenty five dollars for it. So what? I mean, it wasn't about the money. It was the enjoyment. Uh, I was performing again in a, in a different way. So I did a little bit more of my own research. Next thing I knew, uh, in the, this was, I was only in Chicago for two years. And in my second summer, I knocked on the door of a, a production house. I didn't know anything different. I was just knocking on doors like the old door-to-door salesman. And I found, I knocked on the door of a man by the name of Joel Settlemeyer. Name doesn't really, producers of commercials and stuff, people don't know those names. However, if I were to say, where's the beef? Yeah. A lot of people know that hook line, that slogan. Sure enough, I'd knocked on the door of a man that did those commercials. And two weeks later, I found myself in a Wendy's commercial. And uh, no, forgive me. Before that, uh, it was about a month or so before that, I was actually in one of the old AT&T Yellow Pages uh, ads. I remember the Yellow Pages. (laughs) Yeah that uh, were running in New York, Boston, and that whole area. And that's how I actually got into the Screen Actors Guild was that commercial. Oh, wow. I didn't even know anything about the Screen Actors Guild at that point. <laughs> I mean, I was in Chicago. I was just having fun. So I found my way back into the performing arts that way. And uh, 
from Chicago. I got, I went to a couple of competitions, one in New York and uh, an agent from Dallas took interest in me. So I thought, okay, I've got to learn this industry. I need to learn different markets. So I packed up and moved to Dallas. I was there for five years, ended up training a little bit at the same school as Lou Diamond Phillips and a few others. I was in the first RoboCop movie when I was down there. And uh, that's one of those real bloopers in a movie. Uh, yeah, I was actually going to ask you about the RoboCop thing because RoboCop's like one of my other favorite things out there. And, I'm, you know, I'm, you're in the first one. So I imagine like you're, you're actually seeing that outfit that Peter Weller wore for the very first time. That's got to be a mm-hmm. sight to see. Back then, that was 1987 when it came out. 85, 86 that we were filming it. Yeah. And back then, that costume, that getup cost $65,000. We were all made very much aware of how expensive that was. You don't approach him. When he's in that outfit, he's no longer Peter. Stay away from him. All that type of thing. Because he's focused. He was very much a method actor. And uh, little be known, at that time, one of the makeup artists that was working on Peter Weller, Peter Weller and the RoboCop makeups and everything, Became one of my makeup artists out here while I was working on Star Trek. Oh, is that Karen Westerfield? Nope. Bart Mixon. Ah, okay. Uh, although I did work with Karen on Star Trek as well from time to time. I had several different makeup artists uh, on that show. Oh, yeah, we're going to get into all that stuff for sure. I got a whole bunch of questions about those people. <laughs> all right. But yeah, so uh, that was very interesting. I just had one, one real major... I wouldn't even call it major, but one scene that I worked in, and it was really also nice getting to meet Nancy Allen as well. Yeah. Um, and Paul Verhoeven uh, was in the in the precinct. It's it's during the scene where he walks in and they throw the keys to him and he grabs them out of midair. We had to shoot. We shot that thing probably 10 times. And Paul had said, OK, it's this this time we get it. We're moving on whether we get it or not. And on that 10th one, bang, it happens. So it was, it was just one of those things. It's like, okay, if we don't get it this time, we move on. And it happens. It's like you take your umbrella out. It's not going to rain. If you say, this is it, we're done, it's going to happen. It's just the way things happen, go on that time. But, yeah, that the one thing that, you know, is interesting is you're supposed to believe that's, you know, happening in Detroit. But in a lot of the cutaways where they use the landscape of the city, Reunion Tower is very recognizable, which was a, which was a landmark tower of dallas texas well you could just say it's new detroit that's all i mean no one know the difference right that's right call it new detroit yeah we just we just picked it up and moved it that's right yeah no big deal <laughs> it's just, just a giant piece of architecture not a big deal at all uh, yeah then I was, in, I was in dallas for five years and then i went to another competition out here in los angeles and uh same thing happened and i had some agents that took an interest in me and i felt like i'd done what i could in dallas overall and so I packed up and moved out here to L.A., was here for two years, and then went to try the Florida market where the hurricane's coming through right now in Tampa. And um, was there for about three weeks, if that, had gotten a job entertaining at Bush Gardens, uh, was going to be a new live-action creature for, one of, for their new water park that they had developed. I auditioned and beat out 40, 40 other people trying to win that that role. It was all just animation. It was what I had been doing with background and my beginnings of doing makeup and things of how, how to animate and sell a story like silent films. And it worked out. Second day on my way into the job, I got rear-ended in traffic, lost the use of my legs, and that was the end of my time in Florida. 
recovered the rest of that summer, moved back out to L.A. the following year. And I was in L.A. ever since for almost 30 years. Yeah. And you have a pretty big resume to show for it, too. And I actually want to ask you about a few other things, too, just before we jump into a lot of your makeup stuff. Because uh, I saw on your resume that you worked on a lot of really cool stuff, but in particular, two things that I talk about a lot on this show. And that's Murder, She Wrote and Diagnosis Murder. Because I like hearing about stories about Angela Lansbury and Dick Van Dyke. So I'm curious, when you were on those two shows, if you had a chance to have any moments with either of those actors? Um, not with not with Dick Van Dyke, no. Matter of fact, the, day I, the one day I worked on Diagnosis Murder, uh, Dick Van Dyke was not on set in the scenes that day. He only stopped in long enough because, of course, he was a producer. He walked in just to talk, check on a couple of things. I don't think he was there 10 or 15 minutes and gone. Just talked to the director and some other people in between takes and shots, and off he was off he was uh, on gone again. However, Barry was there, and other than a hello, how are you, Chris Ellis, who worked in that episode, I'd worked with in, with uh, on the movie A Little Princess many years before, and so we got a chance to talk again. Chris had done a lot of good character work with Tom Hanks in some of the movies he was in. Um, Apollo 13, and he was in um, That Thing You Do. I really enjoyed whenever I saw him. Uh, Murder, She Wrote, I was in two different projects. I was in, uh, well, actually a couple of different episodes. The one episode took place in Cabot Cove. It was really nice just walking around Cabot Cove, walking around the Little Lake. Um, and it was a situation where, as happened many times, is I actually can be with way background work. Sometimes I actually ended up being in two places at the same time. I was in one shot and then they cut to another shot up the street and I was in that shot as well. It's, but the average viewer, and I say the average viewer with respect, just they don't notice those things because your attention is on the principal actors. And that's the thing about background. We are supposed to blend in. The story's not about those people. It's about the actors up front, the principals. Um, the second project I was on was when she was doing some movies after Murder, She Wrote was pretty much run its course. And it was a flashback, and we were doing a barn scene where there was going to be like a lynching and everything. And I was supposed to be there for one day, uh, and things didn't go quite right. And Angela addressed a bunch of us a few times. I never had really a one-on-one, shake your hand, nice to meet you, see you, and all this type of thing. But it was an interesting situation where I had to communicate with her through the assistant directors when they ran over and they had to come back a second day. And apparently I was important enough that they needed me to come back the next day. Unfortunately, I was already scheduled and was supposed to be on a plane the next morning to Scotland. So I said, I'm sorry, I just, I can't be here. I said, this was a one day call and that's how I worked my schedule. I said, I know things happen, but in this particular case, uh, you know, I'm only in the background and I can't, you know, I can't throw away thousands of dollars in airfare and everything else for what was going on. And, and, and commitments are commitments. I had, I, I'm going to jump back into a similar story where that happened. Um, I had auditioned for the movie Star Trek First Contact. And I was going to play one of the board. And I went to all three, four interviews. And the fourth callback, the fourth interview for one of the board, and it was down to like six of us. I couldn't go to because I already had a contract commitment to shoot a movie in San Francisco on that day. I'd already established the character, the part, 
with Sam Elliott in Los Angeles. So it's not like I can say, well, can you photo double me or can you do something else so I can go to this interview? And in that case, I made far less money on that one day of going up for that that day in San Francisco versus the month I would have worked on Star Trek. Well, you did get a second chance to be a Borg later on, though. So we'll we'll, go, we'll come back to that one. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, let's let's talk prosthetics now because you know you've got so much of that on your career. And I, I think I read the first time you did any was for Alienation. Is that correct? That was uh, one of the very first ones um, professionally in Los Angeles. What it boils down to is I was on the movie Demolition Man, and I was one of the uh, cryo prison guards. Oh, one of the guards, yeah. By Wesley Snipes. It was a fight between Snipes and Stallone. And that day, one of the gals that I knew was doing the special effects lenses for Wesley Snipes. I just happened to know her. I don't remember where from. But her boyfriend, who was a well-known makeup artist, was stopping by to see her. They were looking for a teaching model for him to work with so he could teach prosthetics and special effects makeups to other people. And they just asked for volunteers. Anybody would like to help us out? I thought it sounded like fun. Another aspect. I'd always liked, you know, Halloween and things like that. I'd never actually had full-on prosthetics done before, just masks and things. And so they chose me out of the whole group that volunteered. And, and then a couple of weeks later, after working with him, I got a phone call from a casting service that said, we got a request for you to work on Alien Nation. Are you okay wearing prosthetics and everything? I said, yeah, I have no problem. I think I know who this is. And uh, they said, okay. I got the details. I went in the next day, and sure enough, it was the gentleman I had volunteered to work with as a teaching model because he knew specifically how it would look on me. Um, I could match very well the principal actor and be his brother kind of a thing in a couple of scenes. And um, as they say, one thing led to another word of mouth. I ended up from there on Babylon 5, uh, and then eventually the Star Trek stuff. Trek Untold will return momentarily. Trek Untold is sponsored by Triple Fiction Productions. Celebrating 15 years in business in 2023, TFP creates 3D-printed Star Trek and sci-fi-inspired items that fit into any collection. Whether you're a cosplayer who wants a Starfleet phaser, Bajoran tricorder, or a Klingon dagger, or a toy collector looking for that special accessory or diorama to make your figures truly stand out, Triple Fiction Productions has exactly what you need. And for you figure fanatics, that includes products that are the perfect size for Galoob, Mego, Playmates, and everything in between. All products are 3D printed in the U.S., with new designs constantly being updated on their website. Repeat customers can sign up for TFP's loyalty program for free, where the more you order, the more discounts you receive. TFP also has a pay-what-you-want section, where clearance or misprinted items are available at a discounted price. Best of all, every product can be shipped worldwide. As a special bonus for listeners of this show, Trek Untold has a special discount code just for you. Enter UNTOLD10 at checkout for 10% off of all orders with no minimum purchase required. That's 10% off using UNTOLD10. To see all of their products, head to triple-fictionproductions.net. Or to stay up to date on their newest products, find them on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Triple Fiction Productions, where something is only impossible until it happens. 
Are you looking for the perfect fashion statement to show you're a geek and proud of it? Well, welcome to Geek Girls Castle, where I make fun and functional geeky clothing and accessories for every occasion. My name is Missy, and I started creating my own gear and apparel in 2015 to bring nerdy products to the geek girl population, which does include all LGBTQA+, non-binary, and POC and BIPOC folks. I couldn't find anything for us gals except t-shirts, so I decided to combine my passion for fashion with my fandoms, ranging from handmade skirts with really large pockets, travel accessories like toiletry bags, luggage tags, and zippered pouches. I also embroider nerdy items for home decor like wall hangings and hand towels, and products like keychains, bookmarks, and journal covers. Need something to carry all that in? Well, I make great bags to put all those accessories into or onto. Whether you like Star Trek, Star Wars, Doctor Who, Marvel, DC, and everything else in between, there is something for every geek girl. My website is constantly updated with new styles and fandoms, no matter what time or dimension you come from. If you'd like to browse my products or ask for something custom, visit me at geekgirlscastle.com. That's geekgirlscastle.com. Yeah, so Bill, let's beam into our Star Trek discussion now, and uh, let's uh, let's just start here at the very beginning. So, you know, you mentioned that you're doing different gigs for different shows. Somehow you find your way into the front door of the fine folks at Star Trek. So how did that happen? I mean, is there an audition and, and they're asking you, like, you know, so, hey, how long can you sit in a makeup chair for? Like, like how does that work for you? Um, well, this is just, this will pick up where I just left off. After Babylon 5, some word got around. Actually, during that whole time, casting gentlemen had been trying to get me into Next Generation. Ah. I interviewed for Next Generation probably a half a dozen times. Never got picked for any of them. Just for general aliens to... Uh, photo double for Brent Spiner as a Romulan, a lot of different, six different, totally different things. And they never picked me. And then one night about 10 o'clock, I got a phone call from Cassie. He says, are you still available tomorrow? And I said, yes. He said, well, I just had a Klingon uh, cancel on me for Deep Space Nine. I'm just going to send you in there in his place. I'm not even going to call and tell them. I'm just going to send you because I know you can do it and you fit the sizes. So, I went in the next morning. I don't remember what hour of the morning before the sun came up at that point, but I think it was somewhere around 3.30, 4 o'clock in the morning that I got there because we always had a three-hour, what we call pre-call to the crew and everybody else. And it went on real easy. I mean, I went through the makeup process. I had to go to hair first, go to makeup, go back to hair, back to makeup, and then eventually the wardrobe department. And all of that would take three hours so I could be camera ready at seven o'clock. And uh, we shot the whole day. I was a member of the Klingon High Council. Next thing I knew, I was getting calls once a week to go back to the show. Was that episode the House of Cork? Do you remember? That was. That was. Okay. That's a great episode, too. That's a lot of fun. That's a fun one to be a part of. And a whole bunch of Klingons walking around that day, too. <laughs> it was real interesting to be up there, you know, at the forefront, you know, of the council and having special actions and everything to have to do for the, you know, almost like this commendation type of a thing where we have to cross our arms and do an immediate about face and look very military and everything about it. They want to make sure we did that exactly right. I imagine you got a crash course in how to be a lot of different aliens because you are basically playing, you know, as we'll talk about, I mean, you could, you could run down the aliens if you'd like uh, that you played on Star Trek, but each one kind of does have their own way about how they do anything, how they interact with the environments around them. Uh, so, I mean, yeah, like, do they basically just kind of tell you what to do? Or are you kind of just left to do your own devices? How does that work when you're kind of playing so many different roles so many different times? Well, having watched a little bit of Star Trek and having watched Next Generation, you get an idea what Klingons are like watching the original series, 
we already knew that they were, you know, and at that point in, in early Star Trek, they were an enemy of the Federation and knowing how they had come around, but they were still a warrior race. You know, all these things play into a personality. Uh, it's like right now, when, we, when we're acting, we have just the now. What we're shooting right now, this scene happens here. But no matter what, even in life, you and I talking here right now, but you had something that came before today, before yesterday, last week. You had something that happened before in this life, and you're going to have something that happens on down the road after we're all done. That's the same thing with every character. What was their history? Where did they come from? And where do you think they're going? And then you pick that spot in time, and that's what your moment is. And so knowing what some Klingon's history was, it gave me something to go after. Uh, if a director thinks I need to know something special, yeah, they're going to come up and tell me. Like I, for example, myself, like when I was interviewing for the board, I have a real tendency to smile a lot. And I had to be reminded a couple of times, don't smile. This is board. And that's what got me my job clear back in Chicago with Joel Settlemeyer was none of his characters ever smiled. They were that very stoic, very straight face, blank look. And I just had to go back to that for the board and remember that. Uh, when I was doing, when I, the one character I actually didn't get to do on Star Trek to this date was a Romulan. But I had to remember if I was going to do them, I would pull a little bit from times that I played a Vulcan. And having watched Spock and knowing what Vulcans were about, and they're very cerebral, very logical, very intellectual, that enters. And it's like a light switch. You turn this one off from a Klingon, and you turn this one on for the Vulcan. Or what was really fun, and you see on my list, I played a lot of what we call Westmore aliens. Deep Space Nine was like a way station. It's like a giant airport. You can't have just three or four species walking through there. It won't look right. So they had to make up a lot of different races that would have just appear uh, so that a Klingon and a Cardassian and a Jemadar or whatever and humans aren't the only ones walking past each other. So these Westmore aliens are literally where they would take parts and pieces of everything else they've ever done and mix them up. Um, I've got a little trivia contest that I've got going on that, uh, on Instagram right now. And I'm not going to give it away, but people can watch down the road. I'm going to put up an alien race. They're going to have to guess. But it's going to, the question is going to be a little bit different. So it'll be fun. Um, anybody that's met me live at a convention will know the answer. I hope they remember if they're watching. Anyhow, uh, but yeah, you just, you literally, you switch one off. Now, I'll, let me switch sci-fi worlds here for just a moment based on this question. I'm going to go over to Babylon 5 for a moment. Sure. On Babylon 5, it was not uncommon for me to go in the morning, get made up as one alien race, go to my lunch break, get out of that alien, and at the end of lunch, get into a completely different alien race. So I'd have to turn the light switches on and off the same day. For example, going from a very religious, very mild-mannered race to a total warrior race. And that sounds like it's pretty darn taxing to have to go back and forth that much in one day. And I got to ask, it doesn't have, have his advantages. Yeah, I'd imagine <laughs> it does allow a pretty good amount of flexibility there. But I got to wonder, I mean, how the heck did you keep your skin intact? Because that's something we've heard about from a lot of folks is, you know, if, if you're taking the makeup off too fast or doing it wrong, you might burn your skin, things like that. And you're a guy that spent a lot of time in prosthetics. So you must have like an amazing skincare routine. Well, 
it was just became natural for me. Yes, you're you're right. I mean, you can go clear back to the famous stories of Buddy Epson with the Wizard of Oz and the Tin Man and the problems he had with the makeup back then. But of course, it's different era now, totally different products, much higher quality the way we do things. For me, I have a really basic routine when I'm doing special effects makeup where it's going to be glued to my face. Uh, one hour before I'm due to be in that makeup chair. I just sounds very basic. I take a nice hot shower. I get my pores opened up. Mm. So I get a nice full clean shave. My, my face is as smooth as you could possibly imagine. And I just let it naturally dry. I don't want any excess oils or anything in my, I don't moisturize. Don't do any of these things that you hear about people saying you need to do all the time. I want a nice smooth, clean skin. But I'll tell you what, once that prosthetic is on you and you know, you're going to be in it for anywhere from eight to 12 hours. On average, the beard doesn't stop growing just because you've gotten into makeup. If I didn't first thing, if I didn't start out with a smooth face, the makeup artist has a rough surface to work with. And the, and the makeup's not going to lay down the way it should next to my skin. And it's not going to animate the same. Secondly, as the day goes on, those little whiskers of the beard start growing and they're like little pointy tips and they get into the latex. They start itching. And at the end of the day, that glue, the whiskers and the prosthetic don't want to say goodbye to each other. And so it starts to pull and that can damage your skin. So my key was starting off with a very soft, open pore, clean shave and letting it dry naturally. At the end of the day, it's taken off very carefully with a substance that I'm not allergic to, which is different from everyone else. There are the most people use what's called an isopropyl mirror state. It works with a vast majority of everybody. There's another one called Bond Off that seems to work with everybody. For me, I use a product called Super Solve. I started out with Easy Off. Super Solve is just a little bit more um, aggressive, but you have to be very, very careful with it. To put it in simple terms, SuperSolve is relatively a derivative of kerosene. And so if it's on the skin too long, it's going to burn you. But it breaks down the adhesives very, very quickly. And I have no reaction to it like I do with the isopropyl mirror state. And then when I'm done and I get the, and I get the uh, makeup off, then it's just like in the morning. I've got to go in. I've got to do a nice, hot, warm, clean shower, moisturize the face with, with just water. No oils, no lotions, nothing of that. I don't want to clog the pores back up and let it air dry again. And then I'm ready to turn around and do the whole thing the next day that I'm on set. Sometimes I'd work three, four, five days in a row. I, I'll tell you, those days where I had a day or day or two or three off, that's what's the key there was give the skin a break. Don't try to do anything. Don't irritate it. I would go a couple of days. Even when it wasn't fashionable, I would go a couple of days without shaving just to give my face a break. That's a pretty good piece of advice. Never heard that one before. And when I'm in, thank you. And when I'm uh, live at shows, I actually tell people, yes, there is one blemish on my face that was caused by makeup. It is so faint unless I point it out and I can't even do it on camera here. Um, nobody even knows that that's there. Huh. Uh, but yeah, there was one instance where something got pulled off a little bit too soon. And it was just enough to irritate that it left a little blemish. Now you can't tell it from all my age spots, so it's okay now. (laughs) 
Well, you've aged marvelously, especially considering what you put your skin through. I mean, that's that's really a testament to your routine. It's uh, it's worked out very well for you. And yeah, I would like to ask also, you know, you're working a lot. This is kind of a bigger question here, but you're, you're working a lot as a lot of aliens. So first off, do you actually know how many aliens total you portrayed on all the Star Trek shows you were in? Oh, I'd have to pull my spreadsheet out for that one. Um, <laughs> Full spreadsheet, which, yeah, it's a big one. Which is what I had to do if we, if we get to talk about the Guinness World Record. Um, yeah, I actually put a spreadsheet together to determine what my record number was going to be. All I can tell you roughly right now is in com- in combination of all the Star Trek shows, which was basically Deep Space Nine, which I think I played some 40 different characters over the run. Um, and Voyager was primarily Klingons and a few others, uh, a couple of Westmore aliens. I think I think it was like seven or eight different uh, aliens. Enterprise, I played a series of Vulcans, whether it was the Vulcan monk, the Vulcan Cyrenites, uh, Vulcan statue. And then in... Uh, Oddly enough, in the movie Star Trek uh, Into Darkness, uh, I was involved with the visual effects department to double both Kirk and Spock. And then uh, I was in a couple of scenes uh, as one of the Chelsea residents uh, when Spock came flying through trying to grab onto the garbage scow, whatever it was. And I wasn't in makeup at all. And near the end of that movie, I'm at Starfleet Academy and I'm sitting in the crowd and I'm one of the people that's not an alien. <laughs> so it basically took several iterations of Star Trek to finally get you out of the makeup at a shot. Yeah. And then um, I was asked to be in the fan film uh, Star Trek New Voyages in the two part episode Blood and Fire that was directed and written by David Gerald. And I actually ended up being their makeup artist as well as their special one of their special guest stars because their makeup artist apparently bailed on them at the last minute. And I was the only one they knew they had any experience. And at that point, I really had not done. I was I'm the, like I said, I'm an actor, not a makeup artist. But they did an interview. They were doing a news article, magazine article on the show on the last day. And sure enough. They interviewed everybody else but couldn't get to me because I was in the makeup room trying to get nine or ten people ready on my own. And I still had to be out of there that day by one o'clock to catch my flight home. So some people tried to tell him, tell the article, the uh, writer, uh, the article about me. And it was really wonderful because um, they literally wrote about me as an Academy Award winning makeup artist who just happened to be an actor. I just love how you describe that too. It's like something Dr. McCoy would say. I, I just hear him going, "I'm an actor, not a not a makeup artist, Jim." Like it's great line. Yeah, that's kind of what it came down to in the end. But yeah, that's. Um, I would say so. We're looking at probably maybe sixty-five, maybe total sixty, sixty-five different characters within the Star Trek franchises. I imagine like over that long time period of doing all those different roles and wearing all that makeup, you probably built some kind of rapport with Michael Westmore. Uh, so I'm curious yeah. if, you had, if you got to build any kind of relationship with him and uh, if basically if you have yeah. any stories or anything you can tell us about him. Yeah, well, one of my favorite recollections, of course, still and it goes with the Guinness World Record is and uh, was I got a nice uh, congratulations card and letter from him 
because I'd ask him whether he could be a part of authenticating uh, what I needed done for the Guinness World Record people. And he pl politely just said, well, I know you were there, but I can't identify at this point even which one you were at any one time. But I, I can just say, yes, you were there and congratulations and all that type of stuff. And so it was a nice thank you and a nice congratulatory uh, letter card from him. On set, yeah, there were many days in the makeup room where he would come by and uh, he had gone over with the makeup artist usually the night before or very, very early in the morning before I would get there about what pieces they were going to use for me that day to make me a Westmore alien. And sometimes the conversation would be as simple as, well, okay, um, this, 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 you know, try that. And let's see, yesterday or the day before, whatever it was, he was green and brown. So today let's focus on reds and blues, mm. you know, um, just to make sure there was a contrast. Uh, and only if you knew me personally, like my brother and my makeup artist that I work with these days, they can watch any show and know which alien I am without even knowing I was in the show. Uh, just because of my facial structure, maybe a little bit with my body language um, and my eyes. Um, but yeah, it was, there was one day on specifically on set itself. We, there was a bunch of us playing Gemidars and Michael came around to all of us almost individually or a couple of us, if we were standing together just to remind us guys, you're not robots. This is not the Borg. You're not, you don't have, you're not stiff. You can turn your heads. It's okay. If we have to, we'll come back and, you know, re-glue something, but move your heads, be a little bit more animated. That's going to be one Great. of the harder parts of doing that kind of role too. It's like, especially you mentioned the Jem'Hadar. There's a lot of aliens who are very restrained by their makeup. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't think Romulans are as much because all they have is their little brow, but like a Klingon, a Borg, especially very restrictive. So, you know, for you as a performer, what is it like to have not only have to do that, but then have to spend the whole day not really being able to move your entire body? Um, it's not as restrictive or as you might think with some of them. The Cardassian, for example, and the Klingon, we had very heavy jackets. Yeah. But the arms could move. The legs were very, very open. I would not say that we were restrictive because within the character, we had to be very, very staunch, very upright. Like I said, with the Klingon, you wouldn't see a Klingon slouch. You wouldn't see a Jem'Hadar slouch. So that kind of makes us have to stand up straight, just from the character. The Borg, on the other hand, it was all latex, rubber, vinyl type stuff. The only thing that was rigid on that outfit for me was the arm extension prosthetic. It was like wearing a small, you know, slide-on cast, like a gauntlet. And I had a grip inside that would work tongs or whatever I was had on at that time. But the rest of it, again, it was the character that we had to be somewhat robotic and make sure we didn't smile. However, I'm going to, I'm going to switch gears. There was, there was one, it's called the Greenhorn. That outfit was so tight on me and the head, while it was not a full glued head, mostly a pullover, I was one of only a couple of people that could wear it. It would always leave my nose smushed so much at the end of the day, I'd look like W.C. Fields had about three bottles with. Red, sore. That outfit, actually, it was a full-on, tight-fitting jumpsuit. I didn't have much leg movement at all, just enough to try to make it look like I was walking normally. 
if I raised my arms too much, I felt like I would split the inseam of the underarm. Uh, and, and that was the way with Argo, the movie Argo. The outfit that I was in was originally designed for a female. But I was just thin enough, and the, the outfit had just enough give in it that I could fit into it. But again, I couldn't walk very well. I had to be very, very careful how much I walked. And one of the opening shots where you first see me as the robot in Argo, I'm walking across the valet parking uh, entrance to the hotel. And they did it in slow motion, which caught me off guard. I didn't realize they were going to film that in slow motion. But it actually worked out real well because I wasn't walking very fast to start with. Of all those Star Trek appearances, and there are quite many here, quite a lot to choose from, which one would you say was the most meaningful for you that you performed on screen? And that's across DS9, across Voyager, across Enterprise. Is there one that like really stands out to you that left a real big impact and something that's just a personal favorite memory? Well, they always say your first is the most memorable, and that truly is with me still, the House of Quark. Uh, my first experience, my first chance to be on Star Trek and as a Klingon. And I still, people ask me the question, my most memorable alien race of star trek my favorite and that really in one way it's the klingon because from the original series to today's movies and and reiterations you say klingon people know what that race is about no matter how they look having gone from just the fu manchu and genghis khan look and green face in the original series to the ridges long hair and almost synthetic look of discovery now so that one really, that race really stands out in my mind, and that episode of the House of Court. Um, the other one that stands out in my mind, oddly enough, more than any other, is the time I was working on one of the episodes. It was during Rocks and Shoals series. I think that was fourth or fifth season, and the Jemadar are going. Uh, we, Cisco and company are stealing a Jemadar ship to go back to the Jemadar homeworld, and they crash land into this little pond quarry. And the day before those scenes took place, I overheard it was the director and assistant director or somebody speaking. They said, we need one more crew person for these shots tomorrow, but we don't want to burn any of our regular crew members because everything on Star Trek was custom fit. So if they if they, you know, were, as they say, lost a red shirt, they'd have to find somebody that could actually fit that costume or they have to completely realter it and everything else. And that's money spent that they don't want to have to do. So I overheard them, and the one gentleman looked at the director and said, well, why don't we use Bill? We'll never see his face again. And that was true. So one episode of Deep Space Nine, this is why you never saw me on the Hollow Suites, why you never saw me in the, the baseball Hollow Suite episode, the nightclub. You never saw me in any other episode uh, that I wasn't an alien. And if they needed humans, this was it. This was my one, sh- one time I was a crew member on that little ship. You see me a little bit in the background that they where they needed to see somebody here. That was it. And I was done. That was, you know, that's another little trivia. What episode did Bill play his only human race uh, on Starfleet in Deep Space Nine in the Star Trek worlds? But one of the other things I was really good at, apparently, was playing dead. I'm always fascinated by folks who are good at playing dead. That, that whole thing just mystifies me so much, like how you can just stay so still. Yeah. And this comes to... Go back to uh, you were asking about how did I get the job? How did I end up auditioning? Or you know, did they ask the question? Can you sit still for hours in a makeup chair? 
Uh, I always love to make the joke that um, actually I started learning how to sit still for things when I was just a child. When on Saturday mornings, I'd sit in front of the TV and watch cartoons for hours without moving. Because uh, we didn't have anything else to do in those days. There weren't computers and tablets and video games back when I was growing up at that age. So sitting there for a long time. So, uh, But no, uh, it was uh, always very interesting to playing dead. And it, and it goes back a long ways, even before Star Trek. Playing dead is just simply the art of knowing how to hold still and not let your chest show that you're breathing. You make it sound so easy, Bill. <laughs> one thing you can't stop, and people don't realize this, the one thing you cannot stop if you get a, if they do a close-up on somebody's head when they're dead, unless they put a prosthetic over it, you cannot stop that carotid artery here in your neck from pumping. Yeah. If you do, you will be dead. <laughs> I, and that, that going out of that part, going to a different sci-fi world again, I did an episode of The Invisible Man. And the reason I got that job was I knew the director who called me. In this scene, somebody had to be lying dead in a coffin. So the invisible man could come in, in his invisible state, and steal the Rolex watch off the dead man's wrist while he's still in the coffin. And this director knew about my abilities to play dead and be creative. And he called me up and uh, told his producers, no, you're not going to need scaffolds. You're not going to need wires. This guy can figure it out. And I did. I was able to actually play dead in a coffin for the entire scene, sit up like I was still dead, let this guy supposedly take this wristwatch off of my wrist and then flop back down in the casket like I was just a lump of flesh. I mean, I don't know if there's like a world record for a number of times people have played dead, but you might be uh, getting that number two at some point. <laughs> that would be an interesting one to look up. I, I agree <laughs> with you. I've never thought about that one. Uh, but yeah, there was an episode, it was during the final uh, two-part episode where I actually am playing a, a dead Cardassian uh, in a cargo hold when Cisco walks by for his last blood wine toast with uh, Martok. Yeah. And uh, other episodes where we're on this other world, and I think Sis Jake Cisco is walking through, and there's a whole bunch of us laying dead on this desert floor type of area. Uh, yeah, I've had my share of playing dead. And the other side of that in other shows was I was playing the priest or the minister or the clergyman. <laughs> so I, I, I work both sides of the street. <laughs> yeah, I'm wondering, too, since you got to play so many roles in Star Trek, uh, did you ever get to take any of your prosthetics home? I know normally it's like kind of a no-no, but sometimes folks have gotten away with things. I don't know what you're willing to admit, but did you ever get the chance to bring stuff home? The only things that I was ever able to take home, which nobody would say anything about it one way or the other for the most part, was just, for example, the tip of a Klingon nose or the bridge or uh, the chin piece or the nose piece from a Cardassian. Because those are one-time uses. They're just hygienic sort of things that, no, we can't reuse those pieces. Even on you, we wouldn't reuse it. So those are the kind of things that I would take home. Now, Babylon 5 was a different story. Oh, well, you can't just leave that dangling there. You got to tell me, what would you take home from that set? I've actually got a full headpiece and ears from uh, a Minbari that oh, I wow. played. I have a full face piece from a Burkiri when I played the Burkiri priest. Uh, was it the Burkiri priest or the uh, Burkiri uh, ambassador? One of the two. One had tattoos, one didn't. Um, but that's mostly it. Just a couple of face pieces, uh, a couple of ears from the Minbari. 
but yeah, with, uh, with Star Trek, I actually got a couple of eyebrow pieces from an episode again, because they could, they wouldn't be reused. But if, if I, if they hadn't gone home with me, they just gone in the trash. <laughs> and as far as they know, it went in the trash. And now that we're 30 some odd years down the road and they haven't surfaced on eBay or anywhere like that, they're pretty satisfied that I took them for my own history. I think the statute of limitations is going to be in your favor at this point. <laughs> well, with Paramount, there may not be any statute of limitations. <laughs> Fair enough. I'm not touching that one. <laughs> Bill, as we mentioned at the very top of the show, you are a Guinness World Record holder. And, and the official title is, I believe, Most Special Effects Makeup Characters Portrayed in a Career. That's a mouthful, but it's it's a true, true statement. Uh, so, I mean, you mentioned you, you made this like spreadsheet trying to figure things out. Uh, I'd love to hear about the day you actually received the award, though. And I know that also you had like some special makeup done for that, too, right? Correct. But what was that ceremony like? Is there like a grand unveiling of, of like a, a plaque or something? Um, actually, uh, it took place at the Guinness World Record Museum on Hollywood Boulevard uh, in California. If you've ever been in that area, you probably walked past it. On that day, I had arranged to show up in a 40-foot stretch limousine with a gullwing door at the back, closest I could get to an alien spaceship that day. Um, I rented a costume looking very similar, really, believe it or not. If you watch it, there's, by the way, I'm going to jump ahead very quickly. If you want to see the ceremony, there is a link at the bottom left-hand corner of my website, alienactor.com, where you can watch a short video of the presentation and, and the arrival. And yes, I come out of the uh, limousine and I'm actually wearing a robe very, very similar to what Spock wore in uh, the Search for Spock movie. And uh, reveal, and yes, one of my makeup artists from Star Trek had created a very special makeup for me that day that would be very easy to get off. Uh, so people could see my transformation from alien back to human if they wanted to stick around for 30 minutes or so while I got it off and uh, put regular clothes on. And the curator at the Hollywood uh, location for Guinness World Records was there to introduce me and present the plaque from Guinness World Records, uh, signifying my record as 202 special, different special uh, effect makeup characters that I had portrayed. That is a very, 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 very big number. I don't think anyone's going to top that anytime soon. Uh, but, you know, I got to ask, just looking at the entire scope of your career under prosthetics, what was the most arduous, most taxing one you ever did for any show or any film? In terms of difficulty getting into it, wearing it, how long I was in it. The, yes the, to everything. How about that? <laughs> every one of those. There's a different yeah. one. So the longest is almost a tie, uh, but I would say the longest was actually when I portrayed Frankenstein's monster mm. for a project with Elvira in her Halloween series that they would show at the amusement parks. Uh, it was myself as Frankenstein's monster, uh, another worker friend from Babylon 5 who played Wolfman, and another uh, actor friend from Star Trek who portrayed Dracula. And it was a four and a half minute pre-show for one of Elvira's uh, attractions at Six Flags, Knott's Berry Farm, wherever they were doing them at the time, during Halloween. And that took five and a half hours. So basically, by the time everybody was ready to go to lunch, I was just getting done with makeup. 
but that doesn't even come close to what they did with uh, Jim Carrey on the Grinch those years long ago when it would take them 10 hours to get him into that makeup. He could only shoot for an hour or two a day and then they'd have to get him out of it and send him home. As far as the hottest makeup by far is the board. Uh, six hours in that costume and you get out of it and there literally was sweat in the boots of the costume that I was standing in. Uh, the day we were shooting the board, the, we were at a separate location, not at Paramount, because this was for a different project, not for a Star Trek uh, series episode. Uh, the stage floor was 105 degrees. We had smoke, steam, nitrous, nitrogen on the floor, which made it cold, which made all the other heat rise. Uh, it was a very, very uncomfortable day, but well worth the reward at the end of what we were able to do in the, in the story it told for this uh, special project for the Borg Invasion 4D that showed it uh, Las Vegas experience, Star Trek experience. Uh, I mentioned one that was the most painful already, which was the greenhorn, the head that was just almost too tight. And the heaviest costume is a toss-up. Uh, Star Trek it was either the Jem'Hadar very, very heavy outfit or the Cardassian. Those jackets, those some of those jackets, I'm sorry, the Klingon, the Klingon or the Cardassian, both have these very armor-type jackets that can be pretty heavy. But go over to Babylon 5, we had a character known as the Pakmara. And to play the Pakmara, you have to wear a very heavy, almost filled feather foam stuffed donut around your shoulders. So these Pakmara are very, very big and large. And then the costuming is all these fabrics. It's just layers of what are like lightweight blankets, rugs, you know, to give this character this bulk. And that would be very, it wouldn't be so hot because it would just be draped and we could open it up as needed. But it was just, it actually was very heavy as the day went on. And if you know the Pac-Mara, the, the head of the Pac-Mara is also very large as well. So that hopefully covers the gamut of your questions. Yeah, I think so. Uh, and it kind of leads into my next one, too. You know, I wouldn't be surprised, actually, if Jem'Hadar was in that list, because we're talking about rocks and shoals. And I think that one you guys filmed at Vasquez Rocks, right? Uh, at least parts of it might have been filmed there. We were at a rock quarry just north of Los Angeles. Okay. Because uh, I know I've heard, like, a lot of horror stories from other actors I've had on this show who were Jem'Hadar, who were, like, I think in that episode, and others who did episodes at, like, Vasquez Rocks. And they just said they were just, like, dropping left and right, passing out from just the heat and the weight of all that makeup and not being able to have their pores breathe. Um, right. But, you know, my question here, this is a long lead in for, but what was the best day you ever had on any set and the worst day you ever had in any set? And since since you are the Guinness World Record holder here, let's keep it for days on set that you were in makeup. Right. Actually, one of my, my best days on set was being able to portray Frankenstein's monster. Uh, number one, I'm getting to portray a classic universal monster. And I got this was like one of my own personal records. I've, I've played Frankenstein's monster. I have played Dracula and I have played the mummy. The one where I'm a little bit too tall to play the Wolfman. So my next goal is actually had I been able to take Doug Jones place in the shape of water, it would have come very close to having gotten to play the creature from the Black Lagoon. I would have enjoyed it's one I'd still like to try to do if I get the opportunity someday. And by the way, just uh, as an aside, is this like we're talking the makeup that you did as Frankenstein's monster? Was this like Karloff style or was this like another interpretation of it? Well, Universal has a rule uh, that any Frankenstein's monster must be 10% D 
different from the original. Okay, and they they won't say anything about it. Okay, so basically, you can look like Karloff, just wear a sweater vest instead of that like little ripped tuxedo jacket he has on. <laughs> that what we did was we made a little bit of difference with um, with the horns in the head. They had we had these rings. We mounted the bolts a little bit lower. We cut, did a couple of little different things with it. But what made that so special for me? Do you remember a black and white TV series known as The Munsters? I do know The Munsters with Fred Gwynn. Right. Our stylist for that project came from Universal Studios. She got permission to bring me Fred Gwynn's original costume from the Munsters to wear. Oh, wow. So not only was I portraying a classic Universal monster, I was also wearing a piece of classic monster wardrobe from a hit TV show. So that actually still stands out as my favorite special effect character. Now, the worst in terms of days, Having to be, I believe it was a Cardassian, I was in for 18 hours once. From the time that I got into it in the morning until the time I was wrapped and getting out of it and going home that night, it was an 18-hour-plus day. And that really got hot. It got hot, the stickiness, the itchiness. And, and like I said, that, that jacket that you wear as a Cardassian is pretty heavy. So. That was one that I really, I played Cardassians a lot, but I never wanted to have to put that many hours again into that character, and that outfit for that many hours. Other than that, I'm, I'm still, I keep coming back every time I had to play that. It was only two or three times, but every time they asked me to play that greenhorn, I was like, okay, I'll give you this one, but tomorrow I get to do this instead. <laughs> and we had, we had some fun ones. We had one called the tailhead where you had to be careful when you turn around or you smack somebody in the face like a tree branch snapping back at you. Yeah, I don't know where Michael Westmore got some of those ideas from, but man, they are, they're pretty wacky. <laughs> I never was brave enough to ask him what, what, what really caused it. <laughs> but any good, any good artist, any good designer, you know, it's just part of the creative processes. It's just a, one of those, you know, universal talents that you're blessed to have. Yeah. You know, as we come to a close, too, I just want to also point out one other thing here. We, we've mentioned a lot of makeup that you've done, but I'd love to, if we can shout out some of the artists who did work on you throughout your time on Star Trek specifically and just any memories you have from sitting in the makeup chair. Michael Westmore himself did a couple of things on me, but primarily I had people like James Rowland, uh, Brad Look, uh, Baron Lawrence, uh, Fred Blau, Susie Diaz, when she was a part of the Westmore family. Joe Podner, David Kwajnik, uh, Richard Snell, uh, Natalie Wood. Those are the ones that come to my mind right now. There was another gentleman. I can't remember his name right now. Uh, I know he lived down the street from me. Now he lives up north towards San Francisco. And right now his name just escapes me. So if you're listening, I apologize. See, I feel like, Bill, uh, you know, in a lot of what we talked about today, there's been like the way you've kind of navigated through your career has been through asserting yourself and telling people, hey, I can do this for you, I can do this. But it's also been a very polite way of doing it. It's not like you've been pushy or anything like that. And it feels like this is kind of the story of your career is like very much polite assertion. So uh, you know, I'd love to hear basically what your advice would be for any aspiring actors. And a two-part question, adv- advice you have for aspiring actors to make it in this business and do what you're doing and have the longevity that you have. Uh, and then also best piece of advice that someone ever told you that you still think about and you still use today. Okay, first question. I always just tell young people, old people, like you have to love what you do. 
if you don't love it, you're never going to do your best work because something inside of you is going to be distracted. So whether you want to do what I do, you want to be a starlet, you want to be a leading man, uh, even if you want to work on the crew, find out what part of entertainment you really like, that you enjoy, that will make a difference in your life. And if you can entertain other people or be a part of entertaining other people while you do it, if that gives you a warm feeling inside, then you're on the right track. As far as doing what I do, get out of here. I don't need the competition. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> no, I invite you, please. Uh, if you've got the ability to sit still, if you uh, enjoy playing different characters every day, uh, it's like Martin Landau, when he was in Mission Impossible, all the little, every episode he got to put on a different makeup. It's fun playing as an actor. It's fun playing different characters. And how about best piece of advice someone ever gave you that you still think about today? It was the time I met Robin Williams. I was working on The Birdcage. That was back in 1995. I'd been booked for two weeks in some of the opening scene sequences where I was going to be pretty well established. And I got the word that my father wasn't going to survive another week back in Ohio. He had been failing for a few months. So I needed to fly back home to Ohio. Casting and the assistant directors really didn't want to hear it. It was like, oh, your dog ate my homework. You just want out of this for some reason. They didn't want to believe me. I happened to run into Robin Williams in the parking lot as we were walking by, and I felt inclined to walk up to him and apologize the fact that I'm sorry I was booked on this for two weeks, but I need to go home. My father's dying, and he's not going to make it through the week. My mom wants me to come home. He took my hand, not just as a handshake, but actually just took my hand and held it, looked me in the eyes, and he just said, you go home. That's family. This is only a movie. I lost my dad two years ago. You go home. We'll be okay. About a 30-second, maybe two-minute conversation, whatever it was, it felt like it lasted almost a lifetime coming from him. But it told me that there's more things important in life, but nothing more important than family. That's a great story. Now, uh, last thing for today, Bill, what is the best thing about being a part of the Star Trek universe? This part has been part of my personality for a very, very long time. And that's the art of possibility thinking that there can be better. We don't have to be stuck where we are right now. Life evolves. The world evolves. The universe evolves. It's a matter of what we do with it how we take care of it. It's like I read the other day, I may plant a seed of a tree today, but I'll be gone before I'd ever have a chance to sit in its shade. We have to think forward. Star Trek thinks forward. The diversities, the differences, and how we can make it work. And not just make it work, but how it should work, and if we just are open to it working. That's what I've learned from Star Trek and life. Those are some great lessons for sure. Thank you for sharing those with us. And, uh, you know, I, I know you got this record right now, but it's not too late to add some more numbers onto that here. I mean, what, what do you think? Can we get you on Discovery or Strange New Worlds? Well, honestly, I don't know that those people know I'm alive. <laughs> um, I've had a lot of people ask me, am I going to be on any new Star Trek? So I said, if they call and ask for me, I'll be there. I'm kind of into the latter parts of my, my career and, and life, and I'm enjoying some retirement, semi-retirement, if you would. 
I've had a few offers for shows here and there, nothing that's actually panned out at the moment. But uh, yeah, if Discovery, Strange New Worlds, Voice on Lower Decks or anything like that pops up, I'll be happy to join the join the party. I mean, I think we owe it to you at the very least to get you one chance to sit on like the Vulcan High Council as well. Like, I feel like that's a fitting way to have you just have your final farewell to Star Trek. Uh, shoot me off in a, you know, in a tube. <laughs> but a better, better planet than Genesis. Yes, for sure. Absolutely. <laughs> well, Bill, thank you so much for chatting with us today and tell us all your great stories about Star Trek and other shows that you worked on. Uh, I can't say I've had the chance to talk with a Guinness World Record holder before, and it's very cool that you just happen to be part of Star Trek, too. It's a wonderful marriage of things that happened here. So uh, thank you for chatting. You've been wonderful, and I love your vibe. You're such a chill, cool dude. Well, it's been a pleasure talking with you, and anytime you'd like to do this again, just let me know. We'll spend another hour together. Oh, thank you. And folks, make sure you check out AlienActor.com. And Bill, what's your uh, your social media handles as well? You can find me on at Bill Blair for real. R-E-E-L, not R-E-A-L. Somebody tried to spoof me with the R-E-A-L. They got caught right away. Um, people looking out for me. But Bill Blair, for real, you can find that either on Instagram or Twitter. Alien Actor, also on Twitter. I have two different accounts on Twitter. Facebook is just simply Bill Blair. Uh, if you want to really find me the easiest way, go to your favorite search engine, whether it's Google, uh, Bing, or whatever. Type in Bill Blair and then put the word actor after it. If you don't put the word actor after it, you're going to get the police chief from Toronto who's been in the highlights the last number of years for what he's been doing. I, I wasn't going uh, to ask about that. I was going to ask how you're doing in uh, your retired police career, but uh, maybe not this episode. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, put in Bill Blair actor. I'll be at least 90 percent or more of your first page of results from my alien actor page, my Facebook page, my Instagram page. You can find me here on Skype. Uh, if you want to, I'm, I'm happy to talk with people anytime there's a chance and we can have a little, uh, face to face. Uh, if you want me at your convention or, you know, of a convention where you'd like to see me, make sure you talk to those folks. Like I said, um, some of the Star Trek shows don't even know I'm alive. I've, I've kind of like with the aliens and everything, I kind of fly under the radar. I'd love to be out in your area. Look me up, uh, friend me on Facebook. Nobody else handles me. I don't have an assistant. If you're chatting on facebook with bill blair that would be me and i gotta tell you bill like I, i'm really impressed by just how like connected you are too with your fans and just how much interaction that you do on a regular basis like you are very approachable and that's a really respectable thing to do as well so thank you for just being yourself and being so generous with all the fans around you because you've clearly built yourself up a real nice following and folks should definitely take up that offer and you know get bill at your convention if you're someone that runs one and more importantly, let's like start tweeting to all the Star Trek folks. Let's let them know that Bill is still out there and he's ready to put on some makeup one more time. Well, Bill, thank you so much again for everything. It's been real cool to chat with you today. And uh, yeah, let's definitely do it again sometime. But until then, as always, uh, live long and prosper. Peace and long life. That's it for this week's episode of Trek Untold. Until next time, don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Trek Untold, all one word. If you'd like to directly support this podcast, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter over on patreon.com slash trekuntold, which gives you access to some great perks that can't be beat. Or pick up some merchandise from our store, or use my Amazon shop link to check out all kinds of different Star Trek merchandise. Links for all these things are in the show notes. Shout out to Triple Fiction Productions for being a key sponsor of Trek Untold. Don't forget to check them out and all of the fine folks whose ads you've seen or heard on this podcast, too. 
If you have any questions, feedback, or comments for the show, or would like to suggest a guest or discuss sponsorship options for any of these episodes in the future, send me a message at trekuntold at gmail.com. I hope to see you here again as we uncover more untold stories from Star Trek and beyond and get to know even more amazing people who have contributed to this ever-expanding universe. Until next time, I'm Matthew Kaplowitz, and remember, fortune favors the bold. Trek Untold is sponsored by treksphere.com. Promoting fan-produced Star Trek content in all forms is powered by the RageWorks Podcasting Network and is affiliated with Nerd News Today.